Welcome to the SF Squeecast, in which a group of science fiction and fantasy professionals squee about things SF-nal in a never-ending panel discussion of vague positivity. I'm your moderator, Lynn Thomas. I'm joined today by Squeecast regulars Paul Cornell. Hello. Shauna McGuire. Howdy. And our special guest, Adam Christopher. Hello. Adam's latest novel, Hang Wire, is available from Angry Robot Books and fine booksellers everywhere, both virtual and in the real world. Um, as you may have heard from our previous episode in January, we have mixed things up a bit this year. So uh, we're shifting our focus and we're just going to be doing panel discussions. And um, that is going to be instead of bringing individual items. So think of it as a long series of invisible cups of tea where we're going to... Uh, pick some topics and talk about them. Now, we promised in our last episode that we would be talking about comics and graphic novels. We had promised that we were specifically going to be recommending things for people to look at for, for award season, but um, we all had a bunch of stuff going on, like deadlines and surgeries and things, and so we're just going to talk about comics uh, in a general sense, because... Um, we can only really talk about the stuff we've actually consumed. And we don't all, at this point, um, have feel like we have consumed enough things to, to make solid, necessarily, recommendations. So um, we're going to talk about the things that we love, and we're going to talk about comics in a general sense. And if it comes up as being eligible, we'll try to point to that. But in general, we're just going to kind of have at it with the, the notion of comics and graphic novels and why, as SF readers, they are worth your time. So that's actually going to be my first question. Why? If you're an SF, if you're an SFF reader, if you're someone who is very interested in science fiction and fantasy, why move to a different format? Why move to comics and graphic novels? Um, Paul, I'm going to start with you, if I may. Well, um, I think that there's a lot of good SF and fantasy that uh, appears in graphic form. I would argue that not that the superhero genre is sort of not SF nor. Um, that is to say. <laughs> Um, superheroes live in a world where all of the um, magic and the, the Norse gods and the alien invasion seem to make no impression at all on the inhabitants of Manhattan. They're just going on with their everyday lives um, in actually op the opposite way to how science fiction works, where we look at how a change impacts on the lives of ordinary people or people or things. And um, there's something about the Marvel Universe that lets... Manhattanites just get on with it, and um, I, I, I kind of, I've, I've. That's a distillation of a feeling I've always had. That you know, when when Iron Man three shows up in the long form drama section of the Hugo's, I always feel, well, I loved it, but it's not really our thing, is it? And um, so, yeah, I, much as I love superhero comics, and uh, if you want to vote for my superhero comics, do I'm not going to argue about that. But I've painted myself into a corner here. Shorted. Can can you hear the look I'm giving you? Is it audible? Yeah. I think it should be audible. I know the gasping was audible. <laughs> Superhero comics are science fiction and fantasy as designed by a five-year-old with access to the entire toy box. I, I mean, they are, in some ways, the manic 2 a.m. panel discussion of our genre summed up, drilled down, and splashed all over pages in four colors. As a budding folklorist, Marvel made it so much easier for me to actually have that accepted as a geeky interest by the boys that I hung out with, because I'd be like, blah, 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 Zeus, and they would go, oh, Hercules is dead, and I could be like, yes, except generally Zeus doesn't wear his pants as often as the mighty Hercules. 
Hercules. Or ever. We're very sorry about that. You know, it's, it is absolutely science fiction. It is absolutely fantasy. And, it, you know, honestly, I, I challenge you to go to Manhattan and say that they would give a flying hoot if robots started walking the streets. Manhattan as a city is the sort of place that would adapt to the coming of the robots and just sort of be like, we don't know. We don't know. The, we the cannot cope. The existence of the Norse gods. Um, <laughs> The existence of the Norse gods, honestly, um, Marvel has handled that a couple times, and there's always debate about it. Because we know that aliens are real in the Marvel Universe. We've seen them. And we know that magic is real. You've got Doctor Strange. You know, he's the Sorcerer Supreme. He's just chilling. So all of these things happen. When some dude in spanky pants and a winged helmet shows up and is like, I'm the god of thunder. You say, no, you're a deranged alien from the planet of male models. But it's great how you want to make me question my theology. That, that actually know, seems to be the solution that the movies have set upon, that he's a deranged alien from the planet of male models. Yeah, I, I mean, there there is a lot of coping and dealing with inside of the universe and some of the best and most SFNL things that you'll see in superhero comics are those moments of dealing um, Marvel and DC are a little hemmed in by the fact that, that they have to acknowledge the status quo is God they have to keep the world relatable enough that just as I came into superhero comics when I was a small child and was able to fall in love instantly, they need the next generation of small children to be able to do that. But start looking at what superhero comics and what superhero stories are doing outside of Marvel and DC. You've got things like The Boys, which sets up an entire world, including the economy and the functioning political structure of what happens when you add superheroes to the mix. Um, take a look at Invincible, uh, which is done by the same gentleman as, as writes The walking dead and there we're seeing the actual on the ground physical effects of a superhero war that is absolutely super that is absolutely science fiction that's an alien invasion in tight pants you know it's brilliant um superheroes I, sort of, I, sort of, I sort of started agreeing with you about 10 seconds in but i'm gonna keep on pretending i haven't for the sake <laughs> of the fight <laughs> oh come on um, you know, it's it is. It's absolutely science fiction and fantasy. It's science fiction and fantasy that has its own set of rules. So it's definitely a subgenre. You know, just like a lot of my work is in urban fantasy, and and that has different rules than epic fantasy. And and Paul, you've been working in urban fantasy too. We share more rules with superhero stories than we do with epic fantasy. Oh, absolutely. And um, I I think uh, there there have been actually loads of Thor stories that address this lovely discontinuity between the normal world of Manhattanites and Asgard, notably um, uh, that lovely run where um, uh, the uh, Asgard was hovering over New York continually. Mm -hmm. Again, that shadow might have been a little, you know, it might have put a damper on, on, on you know, a picnic in the park. You know, where you look, oh, there's Asgard still. <laughs> um, but yep. they've, now got, they've now got a celestial standing in Central Park. Yeah, and it's um, just there. Okay. Yeah. So at this point, I want to hear from Adam because we've got two sides, and I, w I want to hear what Adam has to think about has to has to say about this. It, is, does it count? Does it not count? Is it somewhere in between? Well, uh, you know, I think I agree with with both sides. Um, oh, I for think, God's sake! Well, you know, I have to I have to come down straight down the middle. Um, I think that superhero, well, some of the best science fiction and fantasy that you can read takes place in comics and takes place in superhero comics. But I also think that superhero comics is this kind of difficult thing which is sort of in the middle and sort of different. 
Um, and in fact, I mean, I actually I wrote a superhero novel a while ago, and I found that people either got it, and those that got it were kind of comic book readers, specifically superhero comics. But those who didn't get it were sort of saying, well, is it science fiction? Is it fantasy? It was this kind of in-between nebulous thing. Um, I mean, I'm personally, you know, I'm a huge fan of of sort of traditional superheroes, both Marvel and DC. But something like um, uh, Jeff Johns' Green Lantern from a few years ago, thing, um, Rebirth, Sinestro Core War, and Blackest Night, um, I think that's what it's called, that's like some of the best space opera that I've ever read in any form. But what Paul was saying about how it's it's this weird thing where it doesn't really interact with the world in the way that science fiction does, I agree with, because with the Green Lantern stuff, the really good Green Lantern, it's out in space. It's away from kind of the real world. And for some reason out there, it does make a difference. And it has that more science fictional um, sort of impact. To, to, to make um, to bring um, this to uh, the current year, Marvel have had an amazing year. Honestly, they've um, uh, with titles like Hawkeye, Captain Marvel, now Ms. Marvel this year. Um, they've really expanded in a, a kind of diverse way, in a, a modern way. Um, it's been a, a pleasure to be part of it. Honestly, and um, it, it, I think. Whereas I'm not sure one could nominate Hawkeye for a Hugo, I think one could nominate Captain Marvel for a Hugo with a clear conscience. Um, I mean, I mean to say that Hawkeye may live in a superhero universe, but he's a guy with a bow and arrow. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he is. Ab- he is absolutely non-science fictional. Yeah, really, the only science fictional aspect of Hawkeye is the survival of his dog. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that action has promised he will never kill Pizza Dog. And I should hope not, because that dog is awesome. Mm. I think, um, uh, I can't remember what I think. Please talk. Okay. Um, <laughs> what I want to do actually is to, to just, uh, we're going to, we're going to take a little minor digression because it, it occurred to me as you guys were talking that all three of you are urban fantasists. Um, you're all working in urban fantasy in some way, shape or form. So let's talk a little bit about, um, th- how you think about urban fantasy writing and superhero comics in particular, because you were talking about how the, the, the sets of rules are very similar. So let's talk about some of those similarities um, in terms of, you know, when you're putting together your urban fantasy universes, how do you not break them? And do you draw some of the rules for not breaking them from superhero comics that you've experienced? Seanan, can we start with you? Well, I'm, 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 I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, really, urban fantasy is superheroes without the tights. You've got your folks that are wandering around. My urban fantasy is very informed by the X-Men. If you look at all the urban fantasy I've done, it's people living in a world that kind of doesn't like them for what they do, uh, either because they are outcasts from their own weird superhero society or because superheroes in general are frowned upon. So they have secret identities. They have to hide things. Sometimes their situations are very inconvenient. They're not happy people. If you wanted to write urban fantasy that was more influenced by Iron Man, on the other hand, uh, take a look at like Kim Harrison's Hollows series, where the supernatural aspects are very much out of the closet. So you don't have to worry about super superhero secret identities as much. You just get to go straight to awesome secret bases and superpowers and dancing chicks wearing your team colors. 
So that's that's kind of the base decision you have to make for all urban fantasy is, is how secret is this? How well known is it? And I think the modern draw for a lot of us in how do you handle either integrating into the world or not is those superhero comics and is looking at the difference between someone like Professor X, who for years and years and years told people, oh, no, we're just a school for the gifted and talented. Never mind that half of my students are flunking pre-calc, totally gifted and talented all up in here. Ignore the wings. Uh, and then you you cut over to, again, Tony Stark, who's like, I'm Iron Man. I'm cool. I'm cooler than you because I'm Iron Man. Um, and, and all urban fantasy really does fall into either the Avengers or X-Men camp uh, in that in that particular regard. So, so, Adam, where do you think your your urban fantasy falls in? Well, it's funny. It's something I was thinking about is that it does have a real uh, sort of similarity with superheroes. Um, I mean, I've got Ancient Gods, uh, which is a classic superhero comic book type thing, uh, and Sleeping Evil, and I've even got maybe something vaguely alienish. Um, so yeah, I mean, you could you could very easily just switch the description and call it superhero fiction, I suppose. I guess well, to me, urban fantasy is merely uh, the strange and fantastical in an urban setting, which sounds obvious, but that's kind of all it is. But that's also what superhero fiction is, or superhero comics are. Um, I've just realised I've got the bloody Fantastic Four. <laughs> <laughs> I've got. You, I've got. You didn't know that. I really hadn't thought about that, but they map rather well, don't they? They really do. I thought that you did that on purpose. No. <laughs> You're well, so clever. It's not the first. That's exactly the opposite of what I just thought. Um, <laughs> the, 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 um, that's that's not the first time I've had a sudden revelation about myself during the course of an SF Squeakcast. My goodness. But there, there is something, of course, Stan Lee, the master of archetypes, um, just sorted out modern urban versions of all the great legendary archetypes and restarted the myth cycle for the 20th century. Um, possibly one of the most talented writers um, history has ever known. Uh, I, I'm not sure that's hyperbole. I, I think after he's gone and a few decades have passed, people, especially um, people who mythologists, is that a word? Um, will kind of start to see Stan as somebody who really had um a grasp of how myths are made. And um, I think a number of people have reinvented the Fantastic Four. Uh, the fact that they kind of map onto the Beatles maybe isn't an accident either. Um, they were slightly before the Beatles, um, but the Beatles read superhero comics. Um, and uh, the the relationship there is kind of interesting. Maybe that's back and forth. Um, so... You know, if you're four lads from Liverpool who are looking for archetypes to be, um, the Fantastic Four is something to be. Hmm. I'm trying to figure out which one is Ringo. <laughs> the thing. <laughs> okay, yeah, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> I, I, I'm kind of speechless. We've, we've been in Beatles mode in the household because um, we got the 
um, live at the BBC recordings, the ones that were just remastered. So we've been listening to a lot of Beatles documentaries. And this is an aspect of thinking about popular music that I had not really sort of mapped onto. I mean, I understand that historically speaking, during the 40s and 50s, comics were popular enough that, at least in the United States, pretty much everybody read them. They weren't a niche market thing the way they became in the sort of 80s and 90s in terms of readership. Um, So it Uh, makes perfect sense that, you know. Sorry. Go on. But but although the Beatles were readers of the few remaining DC superhero comics, when Marvel came along, this was very much a minority thing. Mm -hmm. There were... A very few DC comics left, and they just they just caused the um, heart rate monitor to bleep mm-hmm. by coming out with Justice League, and the audience yeah. had gone, "Oh, Justice League, that's sort of interesting." We sort of remember what superheroes are meant to be. That we we, we the last generation were really into those, weren't mm-hmm. they? We're not, but we like Justice League, and so Marvel decided, "Let's have a team." Well, they were called Timely at the time. Um, they asked Stan invent a superhero team to match this Justice League thing, mm-hmm. and Stan for for him it was a last throw of the dice. He was in his mid forties. He assumed his writing career was just about over. Um, he said to his wife, "I'm going to write just for once something I want to write, and then I'll leave my job, and it won't be a success, and I'll go and do something more straightforward." And that that what he wanted to write was the Fantastic Four issue one. And that's why he's had such an amazing second half to his life, because he was just starting at the age of 45. And, um, uh, you know, whatever that enormous myth-making talent had gone towards until that point, it really unleashed something. Yeah. Go on. Go ahead, Sean. No, go ahead. Well, no, the fact that he and Jack were both mature people who'd been through a war really helped as well. Because, you know, they were writing comics that resonated with people other than than small children. Yeah, I think that was absolutely key in in things coming together. Um, I was going to feed back to Paul's initial point that folks weren't reading comics as much as we always... Everyone always wants to say, oh, people read more comics when I was a kid. You know, it's it's only in the last five years that there have been any problems. Uh, I get the great big glossy dark horse hardcover editions of the old Warren magazines, creepy and eerie, because I I love them. They are forgotten beauties and I adore them. But one of the more interesting things is that for a while in creepy magazine, they had a column on the state of the industry that was written by someone who had hit the point where he just gave no fucks. He was never going to get a job with one of the big houses ever again. They weren't going to hire him. Warren wasn't going to punish him for being honest. And so he's just like, let's talk about the law of diminishing returns. Let's talk about how Marvel is shooting themselves in the ass this week. Um, And went into great detail on the economic conditions of comics at the time. Like really minute, pick it apart. You don't understand this, so I'm going to tell you about it detail. And there, this is stuff that was published in the late 50s, early 60s. They were already sounding the death knell of comics. They were already flat saying the publishers, Marvel and DC, can't handle it. They're not doing right by it. It's all going to collapse. So we've been in a slow collapse, according to everyone who predicts it, for, you know, <laughs> 60 years. It is kind of the victory of creativity over entropy, isn't it? When comic creators are continually aware of entropy. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay, so 
So it sounds like we need to move on to something else. Um, well, the three of us have actually all written yes. actual superhero prose as well. Yes, you have. Um, oh, I, yeah. Yeah, I, I know Paul has been in... I, I, I remember Paul had a story in Masked, um, yeah. which was an antho- in a superhero prose anthology, shorts. It's a great um, anthology, It's a great anthology. Um, I'm not familiar with the superhero work of Seanan and Adam, so why don't you... Why don't y'all talk about that? Like, what's it right... To, what, what is it like... I mean, Paul... Paul you work in comics now, um, in addition to writing prose. So, so how do you translate um, from working in a medium that is, you know, that is a combination of, of visual and words? Because you know, part of part of storytelling in, in comics and, and graphic novels is, of course, it's a different fo- it's a different form of storytelling because you're not just it's not just your words that tell the story; it's also the work of the artist um, that that takes your words and expands upon it upon yeah. them. Well, so, how do you well, how do you move that into prose when you when the pictures get taken away? Well, it's it's interesting, isn't it? I'm I'm somebody who wrote superheroes in prose after I'd written them in comics, and um, it's kind of. Um, you just have to try and do everything in your head and thus put it onto the page rather than um, rely on other people to do some of that stuff. Um, I've only done it once in a short story, so I think these two guys have, have both done it at much mm-hmm. greater length. Yes. Um, Adam, why don't you tell us a little bit about how about your experiences in writing superheroes in prose? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the book was called um, Seven Wonders, and because superhero comics for me are such a, a passion... Um, I remember when I first picked up, uh, it might have been Justice League or Batman, and I was like 23, not when I was a kid or anything. And this kind of switch went in my brain that I had discovered this thing which was exactly made for me. So when I wrote the book, it was basically me writing my big, epic, multi-issue, crossover, year-long event type thing, um, which everyone hates in comics. But I was thought, you know, if you're writing... 130,000 words or something, then I kind of had room to do all that. Um, but I wanted to make it very much a comic book novel. Um, cause a lot of superhero fiction I find, including some quite big big titles from a while ago, to me they're actually more just things like science fiction, uh, okay. except people, people wear uniforms and things. Um, which is what I was alluding to before, where I found that the, the reception, there's no middle ground. People either really got it and they were comic fans or they didn't because they didn't know what it was. But in terms of the writing, um, yeah, it was just kind of put everything in there. I mean, I made, I, I used so many tropes and things, you know, the spandex, everything's very brightly colored. Um, there's dramatic speeches and uh, double crosses and things. Um, you know, in a, in a novel, you've got room to do that uh, with prose. But I agree that it's interesting because comics are inherently visual and, you know, superhero films work because now the effects are amazing. You know, you can portray anything. And again, it's very, very visual. Uh, in a book, you lose that completely and you really have to rely on the reader. Um, that is, of course, the amazing thing about books because everything that you imagine is telepathically transmitted to the reader. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting experience. It's, it's, it was it was difficult. Um, I don't know. I quite enjoyed it, but I'm not sure other people do in terms of reading it. <laughs> it's, it's difficult. I don't know. It's tricky. It's a it's a difficult. It's a genre. And when I, definitely when I was writing it, it was not me writing a science fiction novel or a fantasy novel. I was writing a superhero novel as a separate genre. 
Well, I, I think that's very important that you have to know that what you're writing is superhero fiction. I would not say that Stephen King's Firestarter is a superhero novel, even though pyrokinesis is very much a superhero power. Right. You know, you can do stories about people that we would look at on paper and say, sure, I could play that character in my Marvel superheroes RPG uh, and not have them be superhero stories. It's, it's very much in how you approach it. Um, what Adam is, is too polite and non-self-promotional to mention is that Seven Wonders is, is absolutely brilliant. And if I had been able to kill him in an alley and claim it as my own before he printed it, <laughs> uh, I would have. Um, so well, he inspired you. me to yearn for murder. Um, and you, you all ought to read it as an example of very well done superhero fiction. So Seanan, um, can you tell us a little bit about your superhero ex- experiences, uh, in um, terms of your longer form stuff? My, uh, my superhero experience was kind of an accident. Uh, I did not set out to write two volumes of superhero fiction and I'm still not 100% sure how that happened. Um, but my girlfriend likes to say that I tripped. Uh, it was absolutely structured as a superhero story, though, rather than characters with powers in a situation that, oh, ha ha, it could be superhero. And I have a lot to thank Stan Lee for, because as Adam says, superheroes, they're such a visual medium. But it also means that especially right now, with all of those superhero movies in the public consciousness, you say, oh, God, another man in a cape, and everyone knows what you mean. Maybe the man in the cape they're picturing is slightly different than the one you had intended, but it has taken all of those tropes and mythic archetypes and put them very much at the forefront of how people think about certain kinds of fiction. So it kind of made things easier on me. Um, It also helped that I was doing very much a deconstruction in some ways of superheroes. I I was doing the what would this look like in the real world, you know, to loop all the way back to, to Paul talking about how the real world never responds. I set up a whole real world built around superheroes as a marketable property and went into things like superhero case law and what does superhero insurance look like? Um, What happens if you're licensed in the state of Massachusetts and you're having a battle with a supervillain who knocks you over the state line into a state that doesn't license superheroes because they're dangerous and bad for insurance premiums? You know, how are people going to react to that? Are you at fault? Are you at liability for any damage that's done while you're having that superhero battle in someone else's state where you are unlicensed? These are things that... Hmm? Sorry, I think in the real world we'd all be the boys. Honestly, we would oh, we yeah. would be terrified of them. We'd hate them with a passion. And I think that that is what would have been the result in my world had Disney not essentially taken over marketing superheroes. So, so Sean, like, just for clarification, which um, can you actually tell us the names of the uh, pieces that you were talking about? Uh, Velveteen versus the Junior Super Patriots West Coast Division, okay. which I think is actually printed under the name Velveteen versus the Junior Super Patriots. Okay. Um, and Velveteen versus the Multiverse. Um, I'm currently working on Velveteen versus versus all of these stupid parallel worlds. Uh, who, she's just having a very lousy time of it. Um, they're okay, probably so, pu- hmm? so these are the Velveteen stories. I just wanted to, yes, to clarify the that for for our intrepid listeners who might not know that. Well, I, I was trying not to be self-promotional. It's okay. It's okay. We're, we're having we're, – your, your experience in this case was the point of the question, so I think it's perfectly fair to actually mention the names My of the things. My experience is legit, but the names yeah. of the things I had to be cleared for, so thank you for the clearance, Oh, M. sure. 
Um, but a lot of it really was very visual for me. Um, I am an artist. I'm not the bestest artist. I'm never going to draw my own comic book title, but I do pretty good. And so I would thumbnail out fight sequences. Every story has to have a fight sequence because you can't just have talking heads all the time if you're a comic book. Some of the fight sequences are very intentionally stupid. Like, this is just when we have to hit each other. Okay, punch, punch, punch. Great, we're going to go back to discussing the divorce. Um, but it was it was timed to fit the beats of comic books. And mm. I think that's part of what made it successful in an odd way, because everyone knows what those beats are. I was not doing what Adam was doing, where he had um, both the luxury and the commitment of you're setting up the great big cross-title crossover war, and you're allowed a certain slowness in some of those pacing beats no this is the individual issues have to work just as well as the collected trade and uh, what we think our audience wants is people in tights punching each other okay thank you shannon um mm-hmm. so so paul um you're currently working both in comics and in prose mm. so why don't you talk a little bit about that experience and um how that differs when you're creating for one medium versus the other well, th- this is a, a question that a lot of people ask, actually. It's a kind of mental gear change to go from one medium to the other. Um, it's easier to go from television to comics um, because they both um, demand um, a certain thinking about budget. You think about money for television and you think about um, uh, space on the page and what the artist is willing to draw in comics. You don't really have an infinite budget in comics. Um you can certainly have a legion of 120,000 coming over the hill, but the artist really has only got to draw the first three of those guys. And um, so uh, it's not like you suddenly have an enormous special effects budget. Um, You really have to, um, in both media, um, limit your words and be very, very specific and careful with what you say. The newbie mistake in comics, as always is to have enormous speech balloons covering the page, um, which I, I did myself. And um, going back into prose is sort of suddenly you're in charge of everything. You're the director, you're all the actors, you're the artist, you're the inker, and um, it's just you and the editor. And that's a lovely kind of freedom. But, you know, sometimes freedom isn't the best thing in the world. Sometimes the constraints of an art are what, what makes an art. Um I'm at the moment, um, uh, as an experiment, because I asked Ryan Stegman, my artist on Wolverine, how he would prefer to work. He said, well, I've only done it a couple of times, but I would really like to have page-by-page plots and draw it to the plot, and then you do the dialogue. And so for issues two to four of Wolverine, that's what we've done. And I'm actually finding it really exciting and really fun. Um, it's a little bit like an obstacle course in that um, he will find new dramatic situations within the description I've given of each page um, and set up the panels in particular ways and have expressions on faces. And so I then get to fit dialogue precisely to those expressions, which I do anyway, because, you know, comics is a very adjustable form. Um you know, you get to um, make tiny adjustments right to the day of uh, printing, which is is one of the delights of the medium. Um, but I'm I'm really enjoying that. Um, we've got another artist on five, six, and seven who wants full script, so I've gone back to that for that. 
and uh, then when Ryan returns, I think we'll um, we'll go back to this uh, lovely page by page thing. Um, I'm just dealing with Jubilee in um, uh, issue uh, issue three, and um, that's just great fun to be able to fit Jubilee speech balloons to her expressions where the expressions already exist, but I've only kind of plotted the expressions. Anyway, I'm I'm probably not conveying how um, <laughs> you, I think perhaps you have to live through this process to to really get it. It's uh, it's it's good fun. So, is this sort of the equivalent of for novel writers the difference between being a pantser and being a plotter? Um, you know, the difference between people who tend to work very closely to outlines and people who just sort of sit at the text and go, "Okay, what happens now?" Yeah, but what if somebody somebody else did the plotting? It's like that. Okay. So it's someone else hands you the plot, <laughs> and then you're like, well, what on earth do they say? Yeah. Okay. See, that's that, that's really interesting, says the moderator, because she has nothing else to add. <laughs> no, 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 this, is, this, this is what's called the Marvel method, actually, because it's what's standard mm. back right. in the day. Right. He would, he would just plot the, the comic, or more frequently just give a vague idea for the comic, and the artist <laughs> would, go, would go and draw the whole damn thing, and then he would dialogue it afterwards. And, um, but hardly anybody does the Marvel method anymore. And uh, Ryan had a little experience of it because Dan Slott on Superior Spider-Man did a bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ryan really likes it. Um, it, it. And an artist really liking it is an artist who really wants to do a hell of a lot of extra work because he has to think about... Um, actually the shape of of the plot on an individual page um which normally i would tell him the shape of that plot on the individual page so he's volunteered for extra work here so you know good on him <laughs> adam you were you were going to chime in with something oh i was just going to say um it's interesting what paul mentioned about how it's, maybe it's easier to come from television to comics uh because i did a a brief uh comic for on uh, digital anthology but being a novelist, primarily, I did exactly what Paul just described, where I completely overwrote everything. Uh, cramming. I mean, I know basic rules about speech bubbles and things, but I put way too much in. But the satisfaction that I got from then going back with the editor and just stripping out as much as possible, uh, trying to remember that actually the artist is there as well, telling the story, not just me. Um, it made it a tremendously satisfying experience and really enjoyable one as well in a completely different way to writing uh, prose. So as Paul was saying, a kind of complete gear shift mm-hmm. um, about a, tr- a tremendous ex- uh, experience. Excellent. Okay. Um, at this point, I think I want to turn the discussion a little bit to the comics that we have all consumed um, so that we can talk a little, about, a little bit about that. Um, to, to give everybody a little bit of time to gather their thoughts and their mental tiki box lists. Um, I'm going to start with sort of talking about the comics that, um, have made the the most impact on me, uh, in recent years, uh, very briefly. Um, many of which I have actually shared on the Squeakast already. Um, but I'm just sort of going to rattle off a bunch of titles of things that are either on my, I need to read this very, very soon list or are on the list of things I've already read. And, and, you know, again, for those who are not regular listeners, I tend to read in trades rather than in uh, single issues. So I'm often a year to five years behind, just so you know, um, on my TBR list, uh, are in, I, I got through the first, um, the first trade of Hawkeye. So I've got more to go through for that. 
Um, I'm really looking forward to reading Captain Marvel uh, by Kelly Sue DeConnick, and I'm looking forward to reading Ms. Marvel as well. Um, I've got a stack of Paul's work that I've not yet gotten to, um, <laughs> which is, it's always deeply embarrassing when you're like, yes, I love you to death that I've not read all of that stuff you did. It's great. Um, oh, that explains so much. Doesn't it though? Yeah. Um, it's not that I don't love you. It's that editing ate life and, and leisure. And so it's just been really hard to get back into the swing of reading a lot. Um, there's a lot of, uh, Captain America runs that, um, Michael, my husband's enjoying very much and he, he keeps sort of waving it at me and I'm like, okay, I guess I can get into it. Um, I'm a little more dubious about Captain America just because he's such a goody two shoes. Um, but for me, it's always weird to go sort of back and forth between, um, you know, I'm someone who kind of exists mostly with the movie and television universes, and then I dip into the comics and trades. And of course, the two don't match up most of the time. It Very, very rarely do they do so. Um, if I had to pick a character that was sort of after my own heart, um, it's probably Batgirl. Um, and, you know, the, the reasoning I think is fairly obvious. She's, she's a librarian. Um, I'm a librarian. It's kind of a thing. Um, and I, I really enjoy her. And of course, um, I, I have been shouting about Gail Simone's work from the rooftops for quite some time because I think that her run on Birds of Prey and her run on Wonder Woman, for that matter, um, gave me hope for the comics industry in a way that I hadn't had for quite some time. Just in the sense of there's someone out there who feels like she's writing just for me um, in a way that I haven't really experienced um, in reading other comics. I mean, like, um, Adam, you had mentioned the the Jeff Johns Green Lantern. Um, mm. And I, I read a fair amount of that run. And it didn't really, I mean, some of it worked for me. But the stuff that worked for me was the stuff that had also been explored in the Justice League and Green Lantern cartoons, actually. Um, mostly because Jeff has such a deep knowledge of um, continuity and history that I found it frustrating to a certain degree as someone who does not. Because it's the constant, I have to be checking Wikipedia or pointing to a character and, and you know, showing a picture to my husband and going, am I supposed to know who this is? Um, so it's that sort of thing um, that I think sometimes becomes a barrier to entry, which is, you know, why there are reboots every five to 10 to 15 years of different characters and different runs. Um, so, so yeah, so Batgirl. And of course I love Black Canary to death um, because she's awesome. Um, again, and most of my love ends up being based on the interpretations that come out of the Justice League cartoons. Um, mm, I've absolutely. yet to really read that many Black Canary comics that do the same things with that character. So it's 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 going to be it's interesting because I tend to like the B team. I tend to not be particularly interested in Superman or Batman or you know I, I like the X-Men just fine but it's not sort of my wheelhouse um I tend to be much more interested in the well it, you know in in terms of Buffy fandom I'm interested in the Scoobies not in Buffy and it, it's it's very similar for comics so go, 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 going back in time I think you'd enjoy um Gail's um uh Birds of Prey run which yes, was I, very I mentioned ah, that, yes I loved yeah. that to bits because they sit around and eat pasta and talk yep. to each other like people. It's the best thing ever. And then they fight crime. Have you seen her Red Sonia this year? Not yet. It is on my list of things that I'm very, very interested in getting hold of. I just haven't had a chance yet. I, I think she's enjoying herself hugely now that she isn't the woman in comics. Yes. And having to 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 carry the burden of being the woman. Um, yeah. It's, um, <laughs> I, 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 I'm a great... I'm, I'm actually a mate of Gail's. I think she's lovely. Mm. And... Um, 
uh, she's an immensely uh, a talented uh, writer, and um, I, I think maybe she's only just getting started. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Captain America at the moment, um, in an alternative dimension, um, where he's just cast into this uh, world where everything's a threat and finds a little boy to look after, and you get a caption that says, I think, five years later. And, oh, my God. Um, so he spent a long, long time, in, in effect, bringing up a son. And what's brilliant, and, and this is, is just a, a old-fashioned storytelling trope that um, uh, Rick Remender has done brilliantly on that strip, you get your goody two-shoes, you put him at absolutely the worst possible situation you give him somebody to look after we don't care he's a goody two-shoes he immediately became that little boy's dad and he's got a little boy to look after i'm on his side uh it's a wonderful run well you know in a general sense of course i'm all for having a goody two-shoes to look if you're going to be parenting i i I like the captain america sounds to me like a good dad like i can't imagine him not having the ability to parent in a way that is going to generally i hope um, be kind and and you know teach an ethical framework and and morals and bring up a kid to be an awesome person. Like I and totally I'm, believe that Captain America is completely capable of that. I, I also love the lack of any angst. That um, his immediate reaction upon being stranded in an alien dimension, but having a child to look after, was right. I have to look after this child. Let's get on with it. So, Sean, and you're, an, you're a huge X-Men fan. I know that. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the stuff that makes your heart sing in comics these days? Sadly, nothing the X-Men are currently doing. Oh. Uh-huh. Excuse me. But Wolverine does not count as the X-Men. He's a member of Alpha Flight, first and foremost. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Wolverine does not count as an X-Men. Okay, I'll, I'll let you go with it. No, I think we just got our episode title. <laughs> <laughs> and then Seanan was beaten to death in the public square. No, I love Wolverine, but I do not feel that when he is in a solo title, it is an X title. It's a Wolverine title. Uh, I mean, honestly, Wolverine and the X-Men, which is the, the comic where he's running the school right now, veers very close at times to not being an X-Men title. It's a Wolverine title. Uh, part of the beauty of the X-Men has always been that it's a team book. It's all about teams. And if you start running down lists of the characters I do and don't like, you're going to find time and again the characters I hate, at least in a team setting, are the ones that pull all attention onto themselves. You know, I love X-23. I actually think she's brilliant. I was infuriated when they brought her into an X-Men team book because everyone wants to use her as the MacGuffin. Everyone wants to use her as your get out of jail free card. And that's not a team book. The beauty of a team book is figuring out how, when I have given you a team consisting of Mercury, Surge, Wallflower, one of the cuckoos, but she's got a telepathic blocker on and Hellion, you're going to get out of this pit. You can't get out of the pit if you have someone that can just do it. So Wolverine is splendid. That's possibly the best thing going on in X-Men right now, but all of the main title teams need to be taken out behind the woodshed and beaten for a little while. That was not amazing. The writers. That was like setting like you a little exam question. Off you went. You managed to extricate yourself extraordinarily fast. Mr. Debrett of Debrett's etiquette would be proud. 
I'm very, very good at navigating questions about the X-Men. It's almost like I've been getting quizzed on whether or not I was a true X-Men fan at the comic book store once a week since I was seven years old. So things that currently make me happy. Yay! Atomic Robo is genius. The fact that Atomic Robo is not showing up on the Hugo ballot every year and just crushing it is a crime against nature in some parallel dimension. This year's Hugo-eligible Atomic Robo volume is Atomic Robo and the Flying She-Devils of the Pacific. Um, you probably want to read, at minimum, Atomic Robo and the Fighting Scientists of Tesla Dean, Atomic Robo and the Dogs of War, and Atomic Robo and the Ghost of Station X. Before you read Flying She-Devils of the Pacific, it'll still make sense, but not quite as much sense. Atomic Robo is about an atomic-powered robot built by Nikola Tesla, who now runs Tesla Dean Industries and regularly yells during the comic in actual dialogue at people for violating the square cube law. His arch nemesis, air quotes, is Dr. Dinosaur, who we're all pretty sure is a genetic experiment that got loose, but who swears that he traveled here from the Triassic period using crystals, despite being a movie-accurate velociraptor rather than being a Dionychius, which would be a little bit closer to his size. Atomic Robo is like the best thing, and the fact that everyone is not reading Atomic Robo sometimes makes me want to shake people. Except everyone at my comic book store is reading Atomic Robo because I've shaken them all. Saga is uh, which won the Hugo last year continues to be genius. Like I keep waiting for the moment where the quality inevitably drops because you can't stay that good forever. And the moment just keeps not coming. So everyone should be reading it just, just so that they can see if it's going to be one of those rare titles that manages to stay transcendent right up until it goes out the door. Uh, the Unwritten, which is a Vertigo title. I don't really read DC, but I, I do read Vertigo. Uh, the Unwritten is winding down, and it's a comic that's all about the exploration of story and what story means. Um, it is in some ways to literary fiction as planetary was to superhero fiction. Um, our main character is essentially an Erstas Harry Potter who may or may not actually exist, but who keeps on getting thrown in prison despite that. It's really genius. You do have to start from the beginning, but everything is currently available in trade. Um, I mentioned the Warren comics earlier, and those are super old. Like, they started being published in the 50s. But Dark Horse has been putting out these gorgeous archival editions, each of which contains between three and six issues, uh, and they are planning to work their way through the entire run of the comic, uh, which, which makes me just so happy, so happy. Back on things that are currently Hugo eligible, Hypernaturals was a two-volume limited series that came out earlier this uh, earlier last year. It is a completely standalone superhero world that actually starts from the approach of what happens if all of your superheroes are completely science fictional in nature. They come from a known scientific source and are necessary to patrol a widespread human society. What happens when that scientific source goes wrong? Um, Hypernaturals is very deconstructive of supernatural fiction while also being absolutely loving toward it. It is, it is super, super affectionate. And it is affectionate in a way that is just absolutely beautiful. It, it really loves what it's doing. I have my issues with current My Little Pony. 
um, which I don't bring up very often because they're not very squeeful, but the official comic title, which has been being drawn by my friend Amy Meberson for a while, is really written with the core audience of children in mind. And it is just absolutely packed with beautiful little call-outs. You can practically play Where's Waldo as you read it with your kids. Um, I'm in issue four of the Nightmarity series, which is great. I'm a, I'm an orange unicorn that can set the sky on fire with my magic. And uh, that basically fulfills a goal that I've had since I was four years old, that I am now canonically a My Little Pony. Um, so that's great. And then when, if you when you to... say, wait, 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 um, when you say you are canonically a My Little Pony, in, in what way are you represented in the My Little Pony title? I am drawn in the My Little Pony title as an orange unicorn with green hair and a chainsaw on my butt. Excellent. And it has been confirmed by the artist that that is, in fact, me. So I am finally, after years of writing to the, to the toy manufacturers asking where my Pegasus to kidnap me and carry me over the rainbow is, I am finally canonically a My Little Pony. So, again, goal since I was four. Now all I need is for the doctor to show up and take me off to be a companion for like 15 minutes, and I will have officially checked off all of my early childhood goals. Wow. I know, right? <laughs> I just really, really, really want Hasbro to send you a prototype version. Like, Dear Hasbro. Yeah. This needs to exist. Well, I do have an original watercolor painting by the comic artist of, of me as a pony that I have next to my bed, all framed. She also did my best friend as a pony, and, and she's a Pegasus pony. Um, and, and I asked, can I keep this? And I have never had Vixie rip something out of my hand that, sa that fast before. So uh, our ponies only visit when one of us decides to bring the picture to the other's house out of silliness. But, uh, yeah, comics, comics, lots is going on in comics. Um, a lot's going on in non-printed comics. Uh, web comics are obviously still award eligible to go back to our abandoned original topic, but also because a lot of amazing stuff is going on online. Um, KB Spangler has a web comic about cyborgs and ghosts and politics and personal responsibility called A Girl in Her Fed. Um, which she's also been, I, I raved about the novel that she did to tie in with her webcomic, which was Digital Divide, which is el eligible for the Hugo Award for Best Novel this year. Uh, and the ongoing comic is eligible as well. But apart from all that, the ongoing comic is just brilliant. Like, it's, it's fantastic. It's so worth reading. If you do the archive, there is a bit in the middle where uh, she's been going back to the beginning and redrawing old strips now that she knows how to draw a little better than she did when she first started. And uh, so you'll go through this mag wonderful art, wonderful art, wonderful art. What the hell just happened? You have fallen into the archive gap. Uh, keep reading for the story and, and eventually it will look less like angry stick figures are having seizures on your screen. Um, Skin Horse by Shannon Garrity and, uh, and Jeff Wells continues to be absolutely fantastic. And that updates daily and ties back to Narbonic, which was her original webcomic. That's not eligible for anything at this point because it's been done for a couple of years. But it's done. The whole archive is online. So you can just pick it up and read end to end the bang. Um, and then the, the other thing I, I wanted to bring up before I stop talking and, and give back the microphone is a comic called Namesake. Namesake is really difficult to describe 
It is absolutely beautifully drawn. It's beautifully written. It's online at namesakecomic.com. It basically starts from the position that all of those stories, all of those things where you just go, oh, she's a Dorothy. Oh, he's a Peter Pan. And people understand it immediately. They have instant context on that story. It's because those worlds really exist and they pull people from our reality into them who fit the namesake role. So if you name your daughter Dorothy and she grows up with blonde hair and a fondness for silver slippers, there's a chance that one day she's going to disappear because she's just fallen into Oz to fix a problem that's going on there. Um, Literally, the story opens with the original Alice coming back from Wonderland and then moves into the modern day. Uh, It's a Canadian production. It's uh, written and drawn by Megan Lavi Heaton and Isabel Melencon. The whole thing is online. Um, It's, it's, it's genius. It's absolutely fantastic. And I don't think that it's getting nearly enough traction um, with the kind of people that read science fiction and fantasy just because it's not getting heard of. There, there's nothing to barricade them, but it's not being brought up in the right circles. And I'd love to see that change because it is just such a remarkable piece of work that deserves a much wider audience than it currently has. Excellent. Um, I, I, I'd like, uh, and uh, as always, I'm um, indebted to Sean and for uh, as we as we all are for um, her absolutely on the pulse knowledge of current stuff. Um, I, I'd like to mention something which isn't actually out there, which I was sent to uh, give a quote for. Um, it's called uh, "Beautiful Darkness," and it's a, a translated work, uh, which is coming out from Drawn and Quarterly very shortly. Um, I was kind of suckered into this, and I read it without knowing what I was getting into. Um, it's a beautifully told, um, with lovely, um, uh, lovely fairy art that's very much influenced by the kind of hybrid online manga art, which seems to be developing as a thing of its own now, um, uh, that, um, Oh, whenever one goes to an online comic strip that is uh, in any way touches upon the manga influence, there's there are there are kind of two strands of artwork now. There's this um, oh mutant manga and superhero are kind of the two big comic strands right now. A- apart from uh, Claire Line and uh, you know the people who do Tintin esque stuff, um, and this is very much in the uh, mutant manga mold. Very very cute fairies. Um, it's uh, fairies who used to live underground with a society and a lovely, um, uh, you know, king and queen and uh, a stable society who suddenly something hits the top of their burrow and they're forced to live on top of the ground. And it becomes swiftly clear that what's hit their top of the burrow is um, a dead human body. And um, them being forced to live in the undergrowth, they start to encounter real wildlife um birds and insects and things like that and they interact with the real wildlife much as very tiny people would interact with real wildlife and um uh, it, it all you start thinking oh okay so our heroine is is bright and strong and kind and she will you know she will bring them together against all this rather awful stuff which is starting to happen on the edges oh but Actually, the people she's working with here, they too are being awful to each other. And, oh my God, did that just happen? And um, you realize you're actually reading a horror comic about fairies. 
And um, uh, gradually things get worse and worse and worse to an extraordinary degree, to the point where really there ought to be some kind of warning on the front. Um, and um, it stayed with me for days in the way of the best horror. Um, it stirred things deep inside me. Um, honestly, uh, the quote I gave was, don't expect to come away unscathed. And... Um, yeah, uh, if you like um, horror that sneaks up on you, that's the thing. Uh, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's a tremendous piece of work, but um, I hope the only people who ever encounter it are people who know what they're getting into when they go in. Um, beautiful darkness. Okay, thank you, Paul and Shannon. So, Adam, uh, we're going to turn over. We're going to turn over the last bit of the podcast just to you. Mm. Um, so, uh, if you want to, we've been talking. Yeah. <laughs> so what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to give you the, the we're going to just give you the floor and you can tell us about the kinds of things in comics that make you very happy. And then when you have wound down, we will do our, uh, list of somewhat silly questions for you to answer. And then, then that will be a wrap for the, uh, panel podcast. So Adam, tell Ooh. us about the things in comics that make you happy. Hmm. Well, uh, one comic at the moment, a current one that I'm completely in love with, which I think everybody needs to read, uh, is Coffin Hill uh, from Vertigo. It's by um, Caitlin Kittredge, who's actually a, um, a best-selling YA author. Uh, it's drawn by Anaki Miranda. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, it's sort of, to me, the quintessential Vertigo comic. It's about um, this girl, Eve Coffin, who... As a teenager from a, a great New England sort of dynastic family, uh, was rebellious and with her friends got onto some dark stuff with witchcraft out in the woods and things. Um, but one particular experience uh, left one of her friends missing, the other one in a psychiatric hospital, um, and they sort of unlocked this evilness <laughs> um, in that part of the country. And then sort of uh, we jump forward to the present where uh, Eve became a cop. Uh, she was shot and had to retire. And she's kind of, without much to do, has gone back to her family roots. Um, and whatever it is that they've awakened, they had awakened when they were teenagers, has sort of um, come, become reactivated. Um, and it's sort of it's connected with witchcraft. I mean, they were witches, sort of real witches, when they were teenagers, and now, of course, they're living to regret um, what they did. But it's completely, um, it's, I mean, it's beautifully drawn, and really it's, it's, to me, textbook Vertigo, modern Vertigo comics. I don't quite know myself what that means exactly or why there should be a particular template or format for it. But, you know, it's an adult comic, but it's, it's not explicit it's um, strange as any kind of, uh, you know, as any fantasy or science fiction is inherently strange, but it's strange without being weird. Um, it's very natural, and her writing and plotting is just so, it's so easy, and it just flows so well. Um, I think it's up to about issue three now. Uh, it started late last year, uh, October last year, actually. Um, and... It's. It seems to me there's part of this new wave of sort of vertigo-ness, um, which is coming out, and it's amazing. And I think everyone should really um, check it out. And also, I mean, Caitlin, uh, she's a great writer, 
of novels. Um, trying to think of the Black London series. Uh, and there's a book called The Iron Throne, maybe. But I may not have that right. Um, yeah, so that's, that's like my favorite comic at the moment. Um, another thing I tend to do with comics, I, I follow creators rather than sort of characters. Um, and sort of one of my favorite creators is Greg Rucker, um, who at the moment is writing a thing called Lazarus, which is drawn by Michael Lark. Um, it's set in the future. It's about the kind of society as as um, been turned on its head, and it's a it's a pretty nasty sort of dystopia where sort of important, powerful families now control all the resources. Um, so they're the elite, and then there's another uh, strata of society which are kind of their servants and employees, and then there's everybody else, you know, the, the millions and well billions of people who are called the waste because they, they do nothing but um, consume the resources that the families have. And every family has a sort of genetically engineered superhero to defend them. And um, so Lazarus is about a family and about this particular, uh, I can't remember what they call it, it's a sister or daughter, but the, the, the member of the family that is the protector and kind of she realizes what they're using her for and how she was created. And it's wonderful. I mean, the, the, the artwork by Michael Lark, it's um, this wonderful kind of gritty, uh, sketchy style, uh, some very muted colours. Um, but it's kind of thing with, yeah, Greg Rucker. I will read anything that Greg Rucker does. Um, similar with people like Ed Brubaker uh, or Gail Simone. You know, if their name is on it, I'll read it. Um, I'm not sure if Lazarus is eligible for the Hugo's, probably not. I think its first collection came out this year, although it started last year. Uh, it said Coffin Hill is only up to issue three. Uh, the trade of that is going to come out in June this year, I think. Um, yeah, but those are my two recommendations for sure. Excellent. Okay. Did you have any any others that you wanted to uh, throw up the flagpole before we move on to the questions, Adam? Well, I mean, I could go on, but <laughs> I won't, though. But... I'm a big fan of um, High Crimes by Christopher Sabella and uh, Ibrahim Mustafa from Monkey Brain, which is sort of espionage and crime thriller set around Mount Everest. And those kind of those frozen bodies of, of fallen mountaineers that are kind of still up there. Mm-hmm. It's a whole kind of really dark conspiracy um, and sort of extortion and that kind of thing. Um, I'm really enjoying Black Widow, which is the new one from Marvel by um, Nathan Edmondson and Phil Noto. Again, um, it's a really ba- it's a back to basics uh, sort of crime thriller type thing, and it's beautifully drawn. It's almost like um, painted, almost. I mean, I, I'm not really familiar with with Phil's work, um, but it's really really beautiful. That's up to issue three as well, I think. Um, but you know, Marvel are coming out with some some great kind of stuff, and there's so much independent uh, creator owned content going on at the moment. Um, to re- really, to me, it seems to be a real I hesitate to use the word gold term golden age of comics, but there's just so much good stuff out there. Um, despite what people say, as we said right at the beginning, about how comics are on the way out and it's all going to collapse. Um, doesn't seem to be that way to me. Excellent. That's my recommendation. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. Okay. Um, at this point in the, the uh, podcast, we're going we're gonna to wind down our discussion, and we're going to ask you a group of silly questions that we subject all of our guests to. So are you ready? Uh, okay. 
Okay. Ready. The first question comes from Paul, uh, which is, what do you most fear? Oh, what? <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. I uh, no. See, this, is, this requires thought for like an hour. Um, what uh, you uh, most fear requires thought for an hour. Yeah. That? It's, a, it's a complicated question. No, just picture what you don't want showing up when you open the shower curtain. Hmm. No, you see, I, that, that also requires thought. Francis, <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah, that'll do. <laughs> okay, the next question comes from Seanan, and it is, can I have a cookie? Yes. Thank you. Always. Good. Well, that didn't require an hour's thought. Oh, that's cookie well, I'd become what he most fears if he said no. <laughs> mm. Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> it's a terrifying transformation. The next question also comes from Seanan, uh, which is, what's the first book you remember reading on your own initiative? Uh, that would be uh, a Doctor Who novelization, The Abominable Snowmen by Terence Dix, yeah. when I was maybe oh, six. Um, and Terence Dix, as probably everybody knows by now, is my absolute literary hero and is the whole reason why I became a writer. And I've met him, and it was the it was the best day of my life. <laughs> you probably can't see Paul and I making faces because we've gone through similar things. I expect, um, but yeah, I, I was actually there. I introduced them. Well, there you go. <laughs> I met I met Terrence Dix when he came over to the U.S. for a convention, oh, and it yeah it, it, it you shake a little bit. It's just kind of a thing. Um, okay, <laughs> sorry, I was having a moment. Um, <laughs> So the next question comes from Paul, and because he's here, I get to make him sing it. <clears throat> what have you done today to make me feel proud? <laughs> oh, my God. What the um, hell? <laughs> I can't sing. I never knew I was meant to sing this. I would have asked something else. Why did, why did you do that to us? <laughs> <laughs> That's what so many audiences have said to me. <laughs> so that, um, what was it today? You know, I spent the whole week uh, being extremely busy and trying to work stuff out. Work stuff out in a kind of philosophical way about what I'm doing as a writer and things. And I think today I was sort of doing comic stuff and I was doing some novel stuff and I was even looking at some TV stuff. <clears throat> and although it's kind of general and nebulous and amorphous, I think um, well, the, Paul... the pride meter oh. has twitched. The what has? <laughs> the pride meter has right, twitched. Right, exactly. So Is that you what you're like, calling it you now? Would, you would, you would uh, <laughs> be pleased with Adamer. Okay, the next question comes from Bear, um, which is, what do you want on your tombstone? Um... Mm, something along the lines of he gave it a shot. <laughs> That's, you know, I'm not that kind of person that thinks about that kind of thing because if I'm dead, I'm not going to be there to read it. So I don't really care <laughs> what other people do. Okay. The next question is also from Bear, um, which is, what is your favorite joke? And do please feel free to tell it. Now, you see, this is another, <clears throat> this is preparation time I don't have. My favorite joke. 
I don't com- comedy is a complex thing. I'm on the spot. I can't provide it. See, I'm letting everybody down now. I'll have to pass. It's okay. Um, Kat's question is, what is your quest? Um, oh, I can hear people laughing in the background because I can't come up with answers. I think that was Sean no, clearing her throat. <laughs> that was just Sean clearing her throat. It's okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, oh. That's a laugh. Right. That's a laugh. Um, what was my quest? I don't know. I'm really just trying to do the best I can. That's a good quest. Yeah. 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 I like that quest. He, he's the best he is at what he does. Well, what trying does to be. Is meat turn sticks. <laughs> I have done that, and I think I was quite good at it. Yes. So <laughs> I'm happy. Okay. The next question comes from me, uh, and that is what is your favorite word? Um, I've got two favorite words, actually. Uh, magenta is probably my favorite word because I think um, my dad used to work in advertising and he, he once for Christmas I got a really expensive imported set of German felt-tip pens because that's what the art department at his agency had. And it had, I remember it had like three shades of magenta and it's kind of stuck with me. And my other favorite word is republic because I just like the way there's a C on the end of it. So I think one day I'll probably write a book called The Magenta Republic. You should. Yeah, that would be like my magnum opus. Charlie Mieva would write that book, The Magenta Republic. It's Republic. You probably would. Just make sure you get cover approval or else the cover won't be magenta and you will be just existentially sad for the rest of your days. <laughs> yeah, yeah there's, nothing, there's nothing worse with, than, than a title called Magenta Republic with a puce cover. That, that would just be bad. Oh, Love, no. we thought it was too obvious. We we saw the title, Magenta Republic. We thought, let's not do magenta. We we, we thought brown. Yeah, oh. brown is, is very in this season. The kids love it. <laughs> okay, and the final question we have is, what's the one place you'd like to visit that you haven't traveled to yet? That comes from Michael. Oh, um... Mm. It's interesting. There's loads of places I want to go to because I'm quite. I quite like traveling. I really, really want to go to Lebanon, Kansas, um, which is the geographic. The, don't laugh. I can hear them all laughing. It's the geographical center of the United States, and I'm sure it's an incredibly mystical and wonderful place, and probably not just a town with some farms. They have four Seven Elevens there. Oh. See, that's magic. Right. That's magic. That's well, magic. that makes 24 over 88. Yeah. Of <laughs> uh, 44, sorry. Okay. Well, that's all the questions we have, so you are officially off the hook, Adam. Oh, Woo! My that was tough. You survived. Yay. Um, so now I'm just going to do, do the outro. Um, thanks for joining us. Thanks to our regular contributors, Seanan and Paul, and our special guest, Adam Christopher. Special thanks to our webmaster, Dimitri Zagadulin, our technical producer, David McCone-Chase, Jeff Bonhoff at Mystic Fig Studios for the instrumentals of music by Seanan McGuire, Katie Shuttleworth, who made our rockin' logo, and Michael Damian Thomas for general administrative support. We hope that you will join us next time. Same squee time, same squee channel. Bye-bye.
Would each of you just say something so I can make sure it's recording as well? Angry Robot okay. is science, too. Okay. I'm upright. Excellent. And I'm sitting comfortably. Okay. So I'm going to count backwards from three, put on my perky voice, and we'll get, we'll get moving. <laughs>